0: Amen. That's a great reminder, is it not, of God's amazing love. It's great to be here at Canaan Baptist Church, and uh, thank you, Pastor Ingram, for the opportunity to be here. Some of my family have uh, been here. Uh, It's a first time for me, so I'm thrilled to be here and experiencing a little bit warmer weather than where I come from. So my home church is uh, Bloomington, Indiana, Stone Ridge Baptist Church, and so it's good to be uh, here at Canaan Baptist Church. Now, uh, pastor Ingram, I'm noticing this water bottle. Um, so I have to tell you, when you preach uh, different places, um, you, you hear a lot of different things. Uh, I had one uh, church tell me, pastor tell me, it's, it's not spiritual to, to drink from a water bottle uh, from the pulpit. And um, I said, you need to have it in a glass. And so I guess it's okay to um, drink out of a water bottle here. That, that's good to know. Like I said, you never know what, what uh, comments you'll, you'll hear, uh, but it is good to be here. I do just want to say, and I mentioned this yesterday, but I have been personally challenged by the mes- messages, some of the messages that Pastor Ingram has preached. And I want to just say to you all, and I know you, this is probably already your heart, but never take for granted the pastor that you have. Um, you are blessed. You are richly blessed. Uh pastor with vision. Um, That's not true in every case. Uh, In fact, in a lot of churches, there's um, sadly lacking vision. That's not true of Canaan Baptist Church. And I love the vision, not just for the church family here, but the community and even the civil arena. And so praise the Lord for that. I trust you're grateful and just thanking the Lord for that. And I trust you do also just uphold your pastor in prayer and the staff here. Uh, We need prayer uh, in, in church ministry. We're under Satan's attack. Uh, And we need the Lord's protection. And so I trust you do pray uh, for your pastor. Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah uh, chapter 66 is where we'll go tonight. And I feel like I'm a little bit in and out. Um, Is there something I need to adjust with my uh, mics? Put it on the tie. Okay, Let's, let's try that. told someone yesterday, the worst about, part about preaching is getting wired up. Are we good? Alright, Isaiah chapter 66. If you could have anything in this life that you wanted, what would it be? Solomon, of course, had that opportunity. God specifically came to him. You remember the story there in 2 Kings chapter 1. God said, ask anything that that uh, you want, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon, of course, could have asked for wealth and riches and and all of that, but no, Solomon asked, asked for wisdom. If there's anything you could ask for, anything you would like in this life, what would it be? I have to believe in a crowd this size, no doubt, in all of our hearts, there's a deep desire to have God's blessing on your life. Is that your desire? You want God's blessing on your life? And I'm not talking about material possessions. Sometimes God chooses to bless in that way. A nicer car, a nicer house, more money, a, a better job as we may see it. Uh, But I'm not talking about material blessings. I'm talking about the kind of blessing where we know the hand of God is on our life. Where we sense the touch of God. We sense the favor of His presence. I'm thankful for the fact that God uh, loves us unconditionally. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more. Well, the Bible reminds us as well that God does have a special regard, a special favor, a special blessing of his presence to a specific kind of person. 2 Chronicles chapter 16 verse 9 it says this the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward Him, complete, united, devoted to Him. Psalm 5, verse 12, it says, For Thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt Thou compass Him as with a shield. 1 Peter 3, verse 12, it says, The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open to their cry. There's a special regard, a special favor, a special blessing for a certain kind of of people. A life that's marked by the touch of His hand. Could I say it this way? A life that catches God's eye. And tonight, I just want to bring a simple message with that title, Catching God's Eye. It's easy for us to be distracted by a lot of different things. And one of the things we can be distracted about, by is the people around us, where we have, can't have a tendency to look at the person next to us or the family across the room or another uh, friend or, or coworker, and kind of compare our lives with them. And there can be a sense where we're, we're good at catching the eyes of others. We're concerned about what other people think about us. We're concerned about perhaps uh, leaving a good, a good impression or being well thought of or, or how do I measure up with the person next to me? But what would it be like if our lives were characterized by a singular aim to catch God's eye? Amen. I just want to ask you here in our time together... Are you living a life that catches God's eye? Are you living a life that catches God's eye? And what does that kind of life look like? There are specific characteristics that God gives us of a person who catches the eye of God. And we see it here in Isaiah chapter 66. We'll read verses 1 and 2. Look at the text. It says this. Thus saith the Lord. The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath my hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that you would just open our hearts uh, to your word this evening. And Lord, I pray that you would use the power of your spirit and the truth of your word to change us, to change me tonight. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 66, we're introduced to three characteristics of the person... That catches God's eye. And I want to set the context of this uh, passage. It's rather amazing, ironic, the context that this is set in. Notice the first part of verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. This passage reminds us of just the power and the majesty, the grandeur of God. I don't know if you've ever taken time to meditate on the glory, the splendor of God, but it's an awesome thing. It ought to be something we do on a regular basis. The heaven is my throne. I can't help but be reminded of Revelation chapter 4, where the Apostle John saw a glimpse of the throne room of God. And what a sight it was. Ezekiel got a glimpse of it and described it in Ezekiel 1 and 10. Picturing this throne that's literally the, the size proportional to the heaven of heavens. Can you imagine such a throne? A sapphire stone, a beautiful sapphire stone. Ladies, you know what a nice, valuable ring is. But can you imagine the size of a stone, a sapphire stone that's the throne, that's proportional to the dimensions of heaven. That sapphire stone is on a clear crystal pavement. Of course, the focus is on the one seated on that throne, and he's with the brightness, the appearance of fire. There's an emerald rainbow around that throne. And what is almost eerie is that sea of glass, that serene, calm sea. There's thunders and lightnings proceeding out of the throne. The splendor of God. Wow. Isaiah chapter 40, it talks about the power of God. And if you would just turn back briefly to Isaiah chapter 40. As we look at the splendor, the power, the awesomeness, the grandeur of God. Isaiah chapter 40, in verse 18, To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto Him? Verse 22, It is He that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Who will ye liken God to? He's powerful. He's immense. A few verses earlier in Isaiah chapter 40, it talks about just how powerful God is. It highlights the reality that God knows not just the size of the mountains, He knows the very weight of the mountains. Can you imagine that? You picture the Rockies, the Canadian Rockies, even the American Rockies. Picture higher mountains, even the Himalayan Range, and God knows the weight. Of the mountains. Uh, The verse uh, earlier, Isaiah 40, it talks about all the dust of the earth. God comprehend, He he pulls together and actually uh, comprehends it in a scale. Imagine that. Think about the universe where even Scientists are still trying to figure out all that's there. They're not exactly sure exactly how far the the universe extends with the millions and millions and even billions of stars. The power and splendor of God where literally the Bible says just He measures the universe, the heavens, with the span of His hand. And then the power of God expressed in all the oceans of the world. Have you ever been on the shore and looked at the ocean and just taken in how much water is there? And the passage describes that the waters, all the waters of the earth are in the hollow of His hand. all that's going on in our world today. And God says the nations are like a drop in the bucket. The power and splendor of God. It's that context that Isaiah 66 is, is set in. King Solomon got a glimpse of the splendor, the glory, the power of God, the awesomeness of it. And he tried to build a temple that would somehow do justice. A lot was poured into this temple. Uh, David made a lot of preparations. In fact, um, the Bible tells us that um, David gathered a a million, a thousand thousand talents of silver. That would be the equivalent of about $8.9 billion in today's currency. The Bible goes on to say that David also prepared uh, 100,000 talents of gold. That would be upwards of $53 billion in currency. Can you imagine all that wealth? $60-plus billion just in the gold and silver decorating this fabulous house. And yet Solomon recognizes, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven of heavens cannot contain me, how much less this house that I have built. And it seems that Isaiah is kind of picking up this theme with the Lord stating, where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? And it's that context that he says to this man will I look. Isaiah chapter 57, you don't have to turn there, but it's a powerful verse that reminds us. Let's say at the high and lofty one, the one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. With him also, that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And I'm moved. When I realize the splendor of God, the power of God, and as David says, what is man? That you're mindful of me. And then Isaiah says, there's a specific kind of person That catches God's eye. There's a specific kind of person that I dwell with. There's a specific kind of person that I manifest the blessing of my presence. Three characteristics of a life that catches the eye of God. To this man will I look. Number one, look at it in the last part of verse two. To this man, we could say, to this man... Or this woman will I look, even to him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit. Number one, the first characteristic of a person that catches the eye of God is a person that is poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? The word poor literally means lowly or afflicted. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. It says, This blessed are the poor. In spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That poverty of spirit, a a picture that helps me with understanding poor in spirit, is the concept of a beggar, a spiritual beggar. I don't know what your community specifically is like right in this area. I know in uh, Bloomington, Indiana, where my home church is, there's two uh, realms of society. You can two very clear classifications. There's high academia. It's the home of Indiana University. And then there's also the subculture, really a drug, heavy drug culture. Those two uh, categories are very distinct. And we'll see a lot of people on the side of the road, very close to this high uh, academia, uh, who are panhandling. They're flying a sign, they have a, uh, expressing they have needs, and as I drive by, certainly my heart goes out to them, but many of them, you're wondering if they're telling the truth or not, if they're being honest or not, if their need is, is really genuine, or if they're just wanting some money to uh, fuel their addictions. But the picture of a spiritual beggar here in this concept of poor in spirit is not that picture of someone who's deceiving, who doesn't really have a need, they just present like they do. No, a spiritual beggar, someone who is absolutely dependent, who has no resources themselves. Someone who catches the eye of God is someone that recognizes, God, I am desperately... In need of you, I have no abilities, no resources, no experiences that I can depend on. The Apostle Paul came to understand that there are a lot of past experiences, there are a lot of credentials. In Philippians chapter three, he said these words: "I place no confidence in the flesh." So this aspect of a poor in spirit is walking in the sense we need God. I need God. Do you walk with that kind of awareness? On a day-to-day basis. On a moment-by-moment basis. I need God. Is there a fire in your soul that says, God, I cannot go on without You. I've got to have You. If I don't have You, I, I'm done. This idea of a spiritual beggar, also the idea of one who is, spiritually, who, who is conscious of their spiritual need and that hits us all every single one of us this preacher included are you aware of your spiritual need it's easy for us to just get comfortable with where we are comfortable with distance between us and god We kind of measure ourselves next to the people around us. Say, well, I fit in pretty good. I feel like I'm doing pretty well. And we get comfortable. And subtly, though maybe not intentionally, we allow other people to be our standard. We allow other other institutions, perhaps, to be our standard. Instead of God Almighty, the Holy God of the universe, to be our standard. I'm asking you tonight, who is your standard? Is someone else your standard? Is it your own experience? And sometimes we can look at ourselves and say, well, you know, this is where I used to be. And wow, I mean, I've come a long way. I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that. And I'm doing this and I'm doing this. And wow, compared to where I used to be, I'm doing really good. Wow. Our spiritual pride creeps in so easily where we become content with where where we are. And someone who walks poor in spirit as a beggar is someone who recognizes God. I need you. And Lord, what is the specific area of need that you see in my life? I'm amazed with the Apostle Paul. He had, uh, at this point in his life, writing the book of Philippians, he had had planted uh, several churches already. The Lord had used them, but even the Apostle Paul says, I have not attained. I press on. I follow after. If so be, I can apprehend that for which I have been apprehended of God. No matter who you are in this room, coming to the recognition and the humility To say, God, where is it that you want me to grow? Where is it, what's the area that you see that you want to put your finger on that I need to change? That kind of humility is poor in spirit. Number two, Isaiah chapter 66, to this man will I look, even to him that is poor. And then it gives a second characteristic and of a contrite spirit. Second characteristic of a man or woman that catches the eye of God, not just someone that recognizes they need the Lord, but someone who is of a contrite spirit. The word contrite literally means broken or crushed. And this is the part we don't like, do we not? I'm all about following God. I'm all about being in church. I'm all about doing the right thing. Until it brings some pain or sacrifice. Brokenness. Crushed. And then I'm not so sure. As we recognize we need God, search me, O God, and know my heart. This was the cry of the psalmist. He said, God, I... I recognize I haven't arrived. I need God. God, would You search me? Would You show me in my life, what is it in my life that is hindering Your manifest presence? What is it that's hindering my walk with You? And there was a fire in the psalmist's soul as he cries out to the Lord, Lord, would You search me? It ought to be that we come to the Lord with that kind of humility. Lord, would You search me? And then when the Holy Spirit puts His finger On an area. A specific sin. Some some area we're grieving the Holy Spirit. Are we willing to respond? Are we willing to humble ourselves? Yes, Lord, I hear You. I hear Your voice. This idea of brokenness. Brokenness certainly includes a brokenness over sin. What is brokenness? I'm not talking about a a deep, dark hole and a manufactured kind of emotion that just perpetuates despair. That's not the kind of brokenness I'm talking about. That's not the brokenness that the Bible talks about. What is brokenness from a biblical standpoint? What are we talking about when we talk about someone who catches the eye of God? A characteristic is that they are broken. They're crushed. I think the primary application we can find in Psalm 51, where it says the, the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite spirit. Remember the context of Psalm 51 is David's repentance over sin. I'm so thankful for 1 John 1:9 that says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Are you grateful for that powerful promise? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. If we confess, He forgives. He cleanses. Every time. But I want to say that confession is not just saying the words, I have sinned. There were seven men in the Bible who said, I have sinned. And there was only one man who was broken and restored. I just want to briefly highlight through these uh, different men, because sometimes we think about confession. Well, I confessed. But then we find ourselves going back to the same sin over and over and over and over and over again. Why is this? Why is it that I'm not getting the victory? I think it in part, has to do with are we broken over our sin? Is my confession of sin, does it line up with God's definition of confession? Confession literally means just agreeing with God, saying the same thing God says about our sin. It's not just saying words, it's actually getting God's mind and heart on the sin that has grieved His Spirit. Who are these men that uh, said, I have sinned? Well, Pharaoh, you remember Pharaoh, hard-hearted Pharaoh said, who's the Lord? And he ends up recognizing who's the Lord when he's about ready to be drowned in the Red Sea. But at one point in the plagues, he actually came to the point to Moses and said, I I have sinned. Would you take this lice, this this locust, would you take it away? I've sinned. Just get rid of the consequences. Isn't that not like us sometimes when we say, yes, I've sinned. We just, we're tired of the consequences. We want somehow our circumstances to change. So in order for our circumstances to change, we just say, well, I'm going to uh, say I've sinned. But our heart is not broken. I think of another man. uh, You remember Balaam? He's an interesting character, is he not? Uh, He's a guy that uh, the king of Moab came to and said, Sent, actually sent some honorable princes to him and said, if, if you come and curse Israel, I'll give you some wealth. And uh, Balaam did the right thing initially. He said, no, I'm going to pray about it and ask, ask the Lord's mind. And God told him no. And so Balaam goes back and tells uh, the princes, no, I can't go with you. Well, then they come back again. More honorable princes come to Balaam. You remember the story? And what does Balaam do? It's almost like he really wants the gold. He really wants the wealth. Now, I can't prove that from the text. We don't, we don't have the whole, all the details. But there's something there that he really wants to go because he asks God again. It's like God says, okay, fine, go. Well, then, only, then the angel stops in there. You remember the story about the donkey and the angel and all of that, and... It's at that point that Balaam says, I have have sinned. Was Balaam really sorry that he had sinned? Was he really broken over his sin? Or was he just thinking, well, I'm not going to do what I was going to do. I just... I really wanted to do what I wanted to do. This is what I wanted to do, and I'm here. And now the angel is putting a stop in the door, stop in the way, and so I'll, I'll agree. But really, down deep, Balaam wants to do what he wants to do. And sometimes that's what where we are when it comes to confession. I speak for myself, too. How many times have we come to confess something and really we just say, I want to do what I want to do. I want to just relieve the pressure, relieve the guilt, relieve the the intense pressure at the moment, and we say, oh, I'll, I'll acknowledge I've sinned. I'm thinking of another individual as well that said, I have sinned. You remember Achan. Achan says, I have sinned. He took of the accursed thing. You remember the story. And Achan, as he is there, he gets caught. He waits to acknowledge... His sin until he has no other choice. Families go by the whole clan, the tribe of Judah, and family by family, man by man, until he's cornered and has no place to go. Wait till I get caught, and then I'll say, God, I've sinned. There's two others very quickly. remember Saul. God told him, kill the Amalekites. All of them. And Saul did most of it. And then Saul, Samuel confronts him, and Saul says, I have sinned. And then he says this, but honor me now in the presence of the people. See, I have sinned there wasn't a brokenness there and then shimei when he cursed david remember absalom and uh, being uh, running over r- running david practically out of town revolting and david's fleeing and shimei that says perhaps this is the opportunity that i can the house of saul can come back into authority and Uh, So Shimei throws stones and he curses David. And then when things actually turn tables and David comes back and he's going to be reinstated king, Shimei comes to him and says, I've sinned. Was he broken? It's almost like Shimei said, oh, I missed it that time. I didn't quite get it right. Things didn't work out the way I thought it would. I'll try to do better next time. And you remember Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus. And he says, I have sinned. He throws the money down in the temple and he says, I have sinned. But then goes out and hangs himself. Where's the disconnect? He he said, I've sinned, but then he goes out and, and hangs himself. It's almost like, well, there's no use trying now. I've blown it. I think God is giving us these pictures of different men who have said, I have sinned, to give us different insight into the fact of what true brokenness is and what it's not. True brokenness is not just saying words. True brokenness is not just trying to relieve the pressure. True brokenness is not uh, just trying to change my circumstances. True brokenness. Well, we understand what true brokenness is from the psalmist David. Psalm 51, what's the first words that David says? Have mercy on me. He recognizes I don't deserve it. I'm not trying to do better next time. I'm not trying to just get rid of the, the pressure he recognizes, God, I've grieved the heart of God. I need your mercy. Psalm 51, verse 11 and 12, it talks about the fact that as, Paul, as David is praying, he says, God, Would you cast me not away from your presence? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. What's he saying is, God, your fellowship, fellowship with you is the most important thing. Until we acknowledge our need for God, until we acknowledge our sin and agree with Him about our sin. And come to the point that our sin has severed, has broken fellowship with God. We won't be broken. We've got to recognize God. I've sinned because i wanted to sin. God, I've sinned because I've won in my own way. David recognizes, God, the only thing that I'm concerned about is fellowship with you. What amazes me is the fact that God, as sinners as we are, wants fellowship with us. He longs for fellowship with us. He wants fellowship with you. And here tonight, no matter what you've done, God is perhaps knocking on your door And we can just pray and say, God, I've sinned just to kind of relieve the pressure of the moment, to relieve the guilt. And we can say, well, my circumstances aren't working out so well right now, so I just, you know, um, guess I have nothing to lose. I'll just confess. No, it's coming broken before God and saying, God, have mercy on me. I have grieved the heart of God. A person who catches the eye of God who is a person who walks in brokenness. Confession not to relieve guilt, not to remove consequences, but to restore fellowship with God. The psalmist says that God is the restorer of our soul. I'm so thankful when we confess our sins with a brokenness, God restores. He's the restorer of our soul. There's a lot of times when we don't experience God restoring our soul simply because we're not willing to go through the gate of brokenness. Brokenness is something that's a supernatural work of God in us. As we agree with God, as we say, God, I'm wrong, I'm siding with you on this issue. As we take God's side on the issue and ask God, God, would you break me over my sin? Allow Him to show us how grievously our sin really is. How He sees our sin. Number three, the last thing that captures our attention. In verse number two, the characteristic that catches God's eye. A person that catches the eye of God, they're they're poor in spirit, they recognize God You're speaking to my heart about a specific sin issue in my life. I'm willing to be broken. I'm willing to agree with God about it. And then number three, the third characteristic of a person who catches God's eye is someone who trembles at God's Word. You see that in verse 3. He that trembleth at my Word. What does it mean to tremble at God's Word? I, I fear that... Perhaps we've lost the ability to tremble at God's Word. Have you lost the ability to tremble at the Word of God? What does it mean to tremble at the Word of God? The word tremble literally means a reverential fear of God. There's two specific illustrations of this in the Bible that we see, uh, at least that the Lord has. Uh, Impressed upon my heart, one, one we see is the story of King Josiah. It's in 2 Kings chapter 22. And if you would, just quickly turn there. We're almost done. 2 Kings chapter 22 in verse 19. You remember the story of Josiah? They find a, a, temp, a, a, a book of the law, the Deuteronomy, a book of Deuteronomy in the temple. Of course, Israel is in a very dark place at this time in their history. They find the book of the law, and this book is brought before King Josiah. They read the book before King Josiah. And Josiah is so moved by the Word of God. He sends messengers to a prophetess who comes back and tells them the Word of God. And here's what the response is in verse Number 19, 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse 19, because thine heart was tender and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord when thou heardest what I spake against this place. It goes on to say God was going to have mercy on Josiah, and particularly Israel at this time, because Josiah's heart was tender and trembled at the word of God. It's a reverential fear that moves us to obedience. To actually, as God speaks to us, as we look at His Word and He shows us uh, things in our life that need to change, where He's the perfect standard that we don't measure up to, and we fall flat on our face and recognize, God, I have sinned. We become broken before Him. Allow God to do that deep work. There's a response to that, that we tremble at God's Word and say, God, I'll obey what You want me to do. Ezra's another example, and the, Israel had come back from, from uh, captivity, and uh, God was doing a, a reviving work, but then there was uh, really tragic uh, circumstances where there was intermarriage between God's people and the people of the land, and, and Ezra grieves, so much so that he plucks the hair of his beard. It says it wasn't just Ezra, it was all those around who gathered to tremble at the Word of God. I fear we've lost our ability to tremble in some cases. We take God's Word as a suggestion book. We take it as something that's a good idea, but perhaps we don't tremble at God's Word. As His Spirit convicts us, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes we just say, do the quick fix. I have sinned without the brokenness. This trembling at at God's Word is really a continuation of this brokenness. It's a yielded will. We allow God to break our will, our pride. Take time before God and say, as Mark 8:34 says, "If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. take up his cross and follow me. If we want to follow Jesus, it looks like that brokenness, that yielded will, but it looks like ultimately, obedience following Jesus. Isaiah chapter 66. Let's go back to there. Isaiah chapter 66. It says this To this man will I look. This is the person I. Manifest my presence to. This is the person that has my special regard, my special favor to this person, to this man or woman, he that is poor in spirit, he that is of a contrite spirit, a broken spirit, and someone who trembles at my word. Has God put his finger on a specific area in your life of need? Are you willing to just acknowledge that before the Lord? Perhaps in, it's in those small compromises. Perhaps it's in what you're watching. Maybe it's something that no one else knows about on the Internet. But God does. Perhaps it's how you're treating your, your spouse. You're treating your son or daughter, young people, how you're treating your parents. God knows. And it grieves His Spirit. And we can just pass over like, oh, no big deal, and almost compensate for the sin that God's putting His finger on and compensate by busyness. Compensate by doing a lot of spiritual things. And what we're doing is like Jonah, running from the presence of the Lord. And in our spiritual pride, we're actually wanting to make ourselves look a lot better, feel a lot better about ourselves. And God says the only way to experience true blessing, the favor of God, the eye of God, to catch the attention of God, is to deal with the thing God's putting His finger on. And it takes humility. And it takes time. But God restores. We're concerned about our nation. And I really appreciate just the vision. I mentioned this earlier, but the involvement that this church has in the civil arena. I think that's important. But it's easy for us to look at all the needs out there and miss the needs right here. The answer our nation needs is not so much found in the White House. The answer is not so much found in the courthouse or the schoolhouse. The answer is in God's people being revived. Dealing with sin. It's not comfortable. It's not comfortable to get honest with God, but it's the pathway to freedom. It's the pathway to life. It's the pathway to usefulness. And will we get serious with God? Say, God, start here. Break me. To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of contrite spirit and trembles at my word. Would you bow your heads with me?